Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, <coughs> Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have a repeat guest who is really wonderful. In fact, many people refer to him as either the guru of metadata or the law and IT in one brain. And for me, I think he just is wonderful. I always learn so much from him and enjoy him coming back on with us. Let me tell you a little bit about our great guest, Robert Brownstone, who is the Law and Technology Director at Fenwick and West LLP, which is a law firm up in the Silicon Valley. He specializes in providing a wide array of services to high-tech and life sciences companies. He also advises clients on electronic discovery, electronic information management, information security, and retention, destruction policies, and protocols. He collaborates with clients as to computer solutions, enabling compliance with all their legal obligations. And he's frequently quoted in the press as an expert on electronic information. He's a member of four state bars, including California and New York. He's also a member of the Information Systems Auditing and Control Association and the Executive Committee of the State Bar of California's Law, Practice, Management, and Technology. There's a lot more about him at his website at fenwick.com and click on attorneys and you will find his name, Robert D. Brownstone. And there's also more information about him on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you, Robert, for coming back. Thank you very much, and thank you for being so gracious. I have to enjoy myself talking to the law <laughs> and IT in one head. That's terrific. I really admire that. So we, let's talk a little bit about how you advise employers, because we have a lot of people driving by that are employers and employees and students at the university and professors and even employers at the university. So as an attorney, you advise employers to develop strict policies for the protection of private information. 
Why don't you share with us some of those most important policies that employers should seriously consider implementing? A few of the most important ones are the following. One is a confidentiality a type of policy in an employee handbook that, that impresses on uh, workers how important it is to keep uh, confidences. And those confidences could include information about the organization, but also in- information on individuals. And depending on the, the nature of the industry, there, there are, of course, some entities that have a lot more information on individual customers than others, but every company has uh, employees. Every organization, whether it's public or private, has employees, and there are many people with access to individual information. So the number one would be a a, a way to treat confidential information, an information security type policy. Sometimes that gets rolled into an acceptable use policy, which is it deals with a lot of the ways that information can leak out and kind of the way uh, employees should or should not use various tools at their disposal uh, while at work. A couple other things that I really are kind of bugaboos for me for clients are the following. One is uh, metadata scrubbing software. Anytime an email attachment goes out, uh, I uh, am encouraging employers to have software in place that will be a goalie, so to speak, a gatekeeper, and scrub metadata out of uh, attachments before they go out the door. And another one is uh, a data encryption uh, approach, which essentially is licensing software that makes sure, especially on laptops or other mobile devices, but makes sure that data is encrypted while it's moving around. We're all so mobile today that we can pick up our computer and throw it in the bag and be almost anywhere. So uh, I'd say to, to sum up, uh, based confidentiality, code of conduct type policy, uh, and, and acceptable use policy for technology provided by the employer, then metadata and encryption, I would say those are the four main ones. Yes. You know, um, I I think that is so important to talk about the encryption when people, when you're talking about the metadata and the emails and just the whole idea of people sending emails with confidential information without encrypting it. It absolutely drives me crazy. I see this coming from attorneys, from accountants, from financial planners. They'll send me something that is maybe they will use something that's I'll teach them how to encrypt or I'll have my assistant help them because I tell them don't send them anything. Don't send us anything that's not encrypted. And then they'll, in the very next email, they'll send us the password. It's so crazy. <laughs> so I think it's a, they need a privacy consciousness, and I think the policies that you're talking about need to include the kinds of privacy consciousness training that will help them to use the encryption software and use the metadata pr- uh, protection programs. Right. I, I think you're, you're, you've hit on a major point. Uh, pretty much everything I do that is facing toward clients uh, or any other entity out in the world. Uh, I deal with compliance. I mean, that would be the one word to sum it up. And in order to have an effective compliance program, some people, I didn't make this up, but some people say you need the three E's. You need establish, which is coming up with what the principles are, what you're trying to achieve. And then number two, you need education. Uh, You need to train your employees. And number three, you enforce via the technology. But a lot of times people approach it kind of 
uh, backwards. They start with some kind of fancy technology, but they don't train people how to use it, or the technology is doing things that they didn't really intend. Now, on the encryption, it's not typically standard for people in the world sending emails to encrypt the emails. It should be standard, though, to have the Internet connection and the wireless router or the, the hard-cabled uh, internet connection, all those things to be in encrypted environments, and anything you post on an extranet, on an external site, the 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 should be a firewall, and there should be uh, password uh, protocols and access. I liked what you said about the passwords. Uh, we at our firm for about eight nine years have hosted tons of client information on websites, and typically we uh, try to call outside users and give them the password only orally over the phone rather than, as you say, sending it in an email. And if you are going to send it, you certainly wouldn't want it uh, sent uh, in a way that it could be captured. You're never going to solve all these issues, but I think the privacy consciousness notion, it really hits the nail on the head in the sense that there are some things that some of us, through a lot of learning, and in reading and writing like you have done, for example, we're now aware of certain things that are now obvious to us, but there, there really is a gap between those who are really focused on these kind of security issues and then everyone else who have other things to think about all the time. So it is helpful to raise the consciousness. Exactly. You know, there was a, a study that was recently done by the Poneman Institute. I'm one of their fellows, and it was amazing because the IT professionals were saying that although they had certain policies that they knew of, they didn't always follow them because they were a burden or they were in a hurry or they were having a problem with a particular program, so they just bypassed it. So I think that's a huge issue when people say, you know what, I just don't want to take the time to, to bother to encrypt it. Or sometimes we have a problem where we'll encrypt, we're using WinZip, and maybe one of my clients won't be able to unencrypt. So then they'll say, oh, just take it off. And I'll say, oh, no, let's try something else. Or I'll encrypt using a different software. Or I'll fax it to you, stand by the fax machine. So, you know, when the technology causes more of a, of a time problem or, a, you know, you're, you're having some other kind of challenge, then people say, oh, they just bypass it. What the heck? Right. Now, on the encryption, uh, to me, the most important thing is, the, is laptops. Uh, under the California uh, regulatory scheme of SB 1386 that as of a year or so ago now also covers medical information, basically any entity that has information that's personally identifiable on California customers or residents, uh, if the data is not in electronic form and it's not encrypted and it gets lost or hacked into, there's an obligation to give notice and to pay a penalty. And so I kind of look at this encryption issue from both the idealistic standpoint and what some might call the more selfish standpoint. But from the idealistic standpoint, we're all in this together. We're all co- individual customers. We're all employees uh, in, in, in various arenas. So kind of everyone has to look out for everyone else's information. Uh, so if you're not going to take a position, well, I'm just going to find workarounds, well, if you, you wouldn't like if someone did that for you, Right. Uh, so kind of speaking to the audience out there, uh, the, the other thing uh, from a from a, so again, from a self, more selfish standpoint or self-interest standpoint, I try to impress on, on clients that, number one, uh, do you really want it to be publicized that you've lost a lot of information or would you rather that the laptop was encrypted 
so that the information is protected, so that unless someone has the password, they're basically not going to be able to get any private data off that that drive. It's going to be useless. That's the point of encrypting. Uh, on top of it, uh, you'll have to give notice. You'll have, in the court of public opinion, you're going to take a huge hit. You're going to have to go through a lot of expenses. Uh, why would you want to deal with that? And then sometimes a client or a prospective client, they'll say, well, you know what? I'm not uh, an entity that has uh, any individual customers, or if I do, I don't have that many of them. So there really aren't that many people at my company that are carrying around people's social security numbers or addresses or other kind of individuals' private information. And my response to that is typically, well, let's kind of take a step back and think about your your company's trade secrets, your company's secret formulas, your company's client list. You can kind of go all down the line, all the things that are the secret sauce, so to speak, of your uh, your work and everything and, your and company how about, does. Yeah, and how about your inside employees? You know, right. you have data on them That's to be right. able to pay them. You've got their social security Absolutely. number, everything for payroll. You've got their birth, you know, uh, your uh, birth date and maybe medical information if you're self-insured. So, you know, you may think, oh, well, I don't have that many. But even if you don't have that many, you still have a duty to notify them. Right. So it gets right. costly and it's it's bad for customer trust, whether it's inside customer trust or outside customer trust. So, right. you know, fact, absolutely. Starbucks, I just read Starbucks is being sued by a group of employees for what you just described, yes. for employee medical information or other types of private information or both getting lost essentially and exposed to the world by the employer. So uh, absolutely, there you kind of make a short list of entity <laughs> secrets, employee secrets, individual customer secrets. It's not rocket science. It's not a super long list. But all those types of information are available in people's email, on people's laptops, if they're able to, to dump stuff from their, their work systems onto there, and people are walking around with it. Yeah. So uh, I try to, I'm going to use the word pitch, I try to impress on, on clients, and many of them are very sensitive to this, but the ones that don't quite see the full range of what is supposed to be kept secret, they don't really think of it from all the different angles, and that tends to resonate with pretty much everyone uh, in the sense of, oh, really, well, so you're telling me if we if we take this one or two type of security measures, we're solving a lot of kind of data leakage problems. Yeah, I say, yeah, potentially you are. And that's that's sometimes more more uh, impactful for them. Right. And probably as the attorney for, or if we're, in, you know, dealing with in-house counsel or dealing with the CEO or dealing with the, the major players, they may get it. But is the, is this really being trickled down to the people who are implementing it? That's That seems to be the problem I see is that sometimes the privacy officer or the general counsel really gets it, really understands it. And they're shocked to find out that even though they have it in policy, it isn't being taught and it isn't being enforced like you talked about before. Right. And it's a very interesting uh a realm that one is in when one is if you're really doing compliance work from a legal standpoint and you're leaving the client in a better position than you found them in, uh, you frankly need to get some access to an IT leader and an HR leader, maybe an equal employment opportunity officer. Just the, the, the key players may differ a little bit. Sometimes it's a CFO. 
And you need to kind of get people that are used to speaking different languages, essentially, and doing different kinds of work each day, the, whether it's the lawyer or the compliance officer or the, the head executive. And you've got to make sure that they all have some kind of dialogue. And uh, sometimes clients feel like, well, you're pushing uh, them to uh, meet with people that they don't really have, have anything to do with. But it is a cross-constituency or cross-departmental uh, issue. And a lot of times I feel like I'm a translator, even in the first meeting. <laughs> right. I'll sometimes suggest, well, or I'll ask, I'll try to be more subtle. Um, <laughs> I grew up in New York where subtlety is not really rewarded, but I've been in California almost 20 years. So I try to take the more laid back approach and say, well, who's coming to this first meeting or who's coming to the presentation I'm doing on, on workplace policies next week? Uh, someone from IT, someone from HR. And a lot of times you'd be surprised I get the answer back from our point of contact, let's say, oh, I didn't think of that, or oh, well, let me let you, you know, let you know. And at times, uh, even at companies that are not huge, I've seen that the IT person and the general counsel, just for example, by way of example, they sometimes have never met, uh, or they yeah. sit at e- they sit at either end of the table, and there's a complete disconnect. I'll go through my little checklist. Well, what are you doing about metadata, and what are you doing about this? And I'll get one. In one instance, I got to instant messaging. And the uh, IT leader very proudly said that he captures it all and saves it, and he has it going all the way back. And the general counsel almost fell off her chair because that is a risk management nightmare. Who wants to have all that? If you yeah, get a what subpoena, do you need it for? Yeah. Right, you get a subpoena, you're going to have to go through it all. You may as well settle the, 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 the investigation or the case. So basically, she said, well, why do you have it? He said, because you told me to hold on to it. She said, no, I didn't. Yes, I did. No, I didn't. <laughs> So I wrote, well, this is perfect. I mean, so here then I you were mediating. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I'm sure that they developed a more uh, consistent kind of mind meld on that from that point forward. But there often are disconnects, like you say, between uh, the, the various constituencies in an organization. So it is important to kind of get everyone on the same page and at least come to uh, that first E, which is establish what you want to be doing. Otherwise, you, you, you'll have someone who... Uh, is very proud of, of, of following a trail that he or she thinks they've been sent on, but if they're not really doing what's the best for the organization or all the individuals whose information is impacted. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny because sometimes I, I see in corporations that the marketing department, for example, will take off and do all sorts of things and do all sorts of marketing with sensitive data, <laughs> and then the privacy officer and the IT officer don't know about it, right? And then sometimes you have security without privacy. Um, and But you can't have privacy without security. Right. So, right. so, I mean, getting the privacy officer, and, and many more companies now are hiring certified information privacy professionals as their uh, director of privacy. And, and that person will work together, hopefully, hopefully, to to be compliant with the privacy rules and and work together with IT so they can have security and privacy blend together but you're absolutely right you go in and sometimes the head does not know what the tail is doing and the marketing department is going all excited doing something and then the privacy department i mean the legal department and the privacy professionals are going oh my gosh <laughs> Right, and, and you know, to be fair, uh, the world has changed so much in the last 10 to 15 years. We are also readily able to quickly uh, get things accomplished, whether it's just by sending an email or uh, calling someone and saying, uh, go into that data and wrap it up and put a ribbon on it and send it 
over there. Uh, it's so easy to do things so quickly that the expectations of uh, supervisors, of clients, of customers, people expect very prompt response. So we're all kind of pushed into this box where uh, you're moving fast and you're not always thinking about the big picture. The other thing I faced with clients and prospective clients is that, what, and typically this is not necessarily just on information security, but it's sometimes on records retention, which really is records destruction and winnowing down what you have. You're kind of asking people to clean their garage or to uh, kind of tidy up their, their, their work area, even if you're dealing with only the electronic data. And, and, and until, sometimes until individuals or entities have kind of had a pain point, whether it was a, whether it was a loss of a laptop or that, where the data wasn't encrypted or if it's, if it's records retention, until they get electronic discovery request in a lawsuit and have to produce a gazillion gigabytes of data, they don't quite uh, get that, that this really is an issue that is up front and center. They're thinking, well, well I'm working on what I need to get done today or tomorrow. Uh, so it's, it's kind of, a, in some sense, a tough sell. But um, companies that have really focused on the big picture, they'll see day-to-day efficiencies. When you start thinking about a short list of, okay, what do we have and where do we have it and what do we do with it, uh, if, if you kind of get everyone at least on that uh, kind of pay, same page where they're looking at the same short list and figuring out, well, what can we do better uh, to get people uh, information more protected and to get people so they can get to information more quickly within the organization. Now you're starting to, to touch what, what people deal with every day, and they start to get a little more interested in it sometimes. Right, and it's easier to start with a categorization of sensitive versus non-sensitive data right from the beginning so that you – you know, you're not as worried about certain stuff that you can get rid of. Do you know what I mean? And right. you are more worried about other data that you can get rid of. But most companies don't even categorize the data they have, and they don't even know where it is because there's so many electronic devices. They don't know if it's on a thumb drive. They don't know if it's on a CD. They don't know if it's on a backup tape. Right. It's just it's so many different places that it's it's almost insurmountable. Right. And on the backup tape issue, almost every – I've worked with over 30 uh, clients in the last couple of years alone on various information management issues, pretty much every one of them has had uh, their backup data that's only supposed to be there for disaster recovery. They've had it for years and years and years, and sometimes some of it's unlabeled. Sometimes it's sitting in a warehouse, and they're paying to store it in the warehouse. Sometimes it's so old that they don't have the technology to restore the data to the realm of the living, even if they had to. Right. So it's really a nightmare waiting to happen. Um, and I frankly push uh, companies to, if they can't give me a reason, and I've had government agency clients too, if they can't give a reason why certain backups need to be kept more than X months or X years, then it should go. Like, you can't need all these different uh, iterations of the same information uh, and you're really, from a risk management standpoint, uh, you're increasing the risk that it'll be lost or stolen. You're increasing the risk that you w- won't know what you have. Uh, and you're also, from again, from a litigation standpoint, I litigated long ago, you're, you're in a position where uh, the more you have, the more you might have to dig into and the more costly and painful litigation will be. And probably the more bad stuff that's in there just because of the sheer volume. Right. And even if you're encrypting your backup tapes now, probably from years ago, you didn't. Right. That's a good <laughs> so point. you've got some real problems with that. 
Um, let's switch gears, but before we do, for anybody who's driving by, I want you to know that I am speaking with a wonderful guru on IT issues. He's an attorney. He's uh, law and IT in one brain. He's the guru of metadata. We are speaking with Robert Brownstone, who is the law and technology director at Fenwick & West up in the Silicon Valley. And he is specializing in high-tech and life science issues with regard to various types of companies. And he is wonderful. So now we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit more about privacy. Uh, let's see if you can help me understand what you believe about privacy expectation in the workplace. That's changing too, isn't it? I think so. I think it, in some ways it's going in, in two different directions. Uh, one issue, and I'm going to put on my management hat, so to speak, because typically 99.9% uh, .9 of the time I'm representing an entity. Uh, from an entity standpoint, uh, at least in the United States, under the law, you have the ability and the desire to basically tell your employees anything you create, store, receive, or maintain on any of our systems or devices is ours. It's not yours. There's no expectation of privacy. Even if you if you uh, send you know the occasional personal email uh, and then you delete it, it's possible uh, you know if it la it was on the servers for a couple of days that we we still have it. You should not assume it's private. So it, that sounds very much like Big Brother and Big Sister. Uh, on the other hand, uh, so and that's what I like to call the no expectation of privacy policy or lack of expectation of privacy policy. It's part and parcel of how you use technology as an employee. On the other side of the coin... Well, let me stop you yeah, for just a second. Sure. Um, at least if it is upfront and transparent from day one, then everybody knows it. If that's the policy when you walk in and you're an employee the first day, you know, you're told anything you do on our, whether it's voicemail or email or anything electronic or anything on our, our devices is not considered yours. Don't expect any privacy. It's like saying, okay, be smart, guys. Uh, right. I mean, at least they know. The problem is is when the policy is not made clear. Don't yeah. you think? Well, two, two things. One is where, the, where they're either the policy is so old and vague uh, that it may not even address the electronic. I mean, I've seen the occasional client that still has something like that. And two is when it is, is not a clear policy, or as you described in that survey, I think Cisco Systems might have been involved in, in that survey, where they said that you, you might have a policy, but if it's just sitting on an intranet or physically printed out and put in a drawer and you're not educating people on it, is it really a policy? And in fact, the courts routinely look at two factors when they assess whether there's been an invasion of an employee's privacy. They look at, number one, is there a policy? What does it say? And number two, well, what happened in the trenches? In other words, in the trenches, was there some kind of uh, complete disconnect between what the policy said and what actually happened? Right, and, and were the managers allowing it to happen? In other words, did they give you a handbook, no one really read it to you, and then everybody knew that you were using it for, for private use, and, and no one really went and said, hey, you know, just watch it. You're not supposed to be using our stuff for your private use, or you're not supposed to be sending things that are... Uh, you know, that you might think are private. Right, and there are even some uh, reported cases where the employer or some manager at a manager level or an IT administrator level went even farther and affirmatively uh, basically undercut the contents of the policy. There's a very highly publicized case, Quan v. Arch Wireless, 
that originated in Southern California, the Ontario uh, Police Department. In that case, the, there was an old policy in place that said it was an email use policy, said there's no privacy. Uh, then years later, the uh, police department uh, contracted with an outside provider to get pagers for the, the policemen. And they orally apparently kind of told people in a meeting, well, the, the rule on no privacy applies to your pagers as well. Uh, and they also told them you have a certain amount of characters you can send per month. And if you, if you go over that, you have to pay for it personally. Now, one of the the lead officers in that uh, region went around employees each month. He said, you know, I don't want to look at your private private text messages. So just pay the you know the excess, pay the over for the overage, uh, and I won't look at them. We won't look at them. No worries, it will be private. Uh, and the court, and make a long story short, in, in, on those facts. Uh, that's a, somewhat of a rare case, but it does happen from time to time where the court says, well, you know what, this, these employees, these policemen did have a reasonable expectation of privacy because your operational reality was different than what was in the writing. The writing was very old. It, didn't, it, it only mentioned email. It didn't extend to all other kinds of communication. And in addition, uh, it wasn't just where you were never educated on the policy. In fact, uh, someone in authority was telling you something different. So you had a right to rely on that. So but from an employer's standpoint, horrible facts in that case, but it does kind of open a, a door uh, in the way that you describe, which is you got to make sure that the policy is real, so to speak, that it's actually not just a document that's written up and placed somewhere. Right. So write what you mean, mean what you say, enforce what you say, right? Yes. And, <laughs> and I like what you said earlier about uh, the be smart uh, we had a client uh, about a year ago who said, yeah, I'm thrilled with what you're doing. With the, you know, You've taken my long retention policy and you've reworked it and it's reading a lot better and it's modernized and this and that. I'm thrilled with the comments you've had on our uh, acceptable use and lack of privacy policy. But what I want in addition is uh, I want a one to two pager. If you can get it on one page, even better. But no more than two pages and it's going to have two halves. And the first half is going to be essentially the magic words about anything created, stored, or received is ours. No privacy, right? You know, a sentence or two on that. And then second, here's our retention program. It's new. Uh, the goal is to keep everything we have to keep under the law, but to get rid of everything else. And so I kind of thought about that, and I said, that's, that's interesting. I talked to one of my colleagues about it. She'd had a lot of experience with that client. She said, don't you get what they're saying? They're saying, number one, be smart. Don't write private or stupid things right. <laughs> in email. Right. And number two, if you do, <laughs> then get rid of it. Don't hold on to it forever. Because right. so, I was kind of saying to her, well, why are they wanting these two things together? Uh, yeah, sure, they're related. Uh, a records management policy and a, and a an information security policy are definitely related. And she said, that's how they're related. It's, it's don't be stupid, but if you are, you know, get rid of it. Don't hold on to it for right. a long period of time. And and to be honest, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, people have the ability to write anything in many different ways really quickly nowadays, and it is always better to warn them, if you can, uh, to give them some general um, principles about what to do and what they should think before they do. Right. And, you know, I end up with sometimes is the mediator in these kinds of cases when you've got the employer and the employee there and there's such a disconnect of what they thought was the rule. You know, they they really have to try and 
resolve this. So now I tell anybody, you know, who's an employee, never, ever use email from work to ever contact me, for example. Never do that. Use it, throw a hot, way, hot mail or something. Never let them see anything private that you do. Do it on your own devices. But that kind of leads me to the question, what about it? Can an employer monitor the activity on the devices that someone uses at work? Like, let's say someone has their own iPhone. Can they actually go in and look at their iPhone e-messages? Well, that's a really good question. The law is uh, unresolved. On that, let's kind of just lay out the different possibilities. If it's provided by the employer and the policy is clear in the way that, that you and I have been discussing, the policy is clear that any employer-provided device is encompassed, then I think it's a pretty, it's pretty clear cut that it is part of part and parcel of what you're doing for work. Where oh, wait a second, get- wait a second. So in other words, those of you who are listening, if you work for a company and they issue you a laptop or a BlackBerry, all right, um, what I think I hear you saying is that that is company device. And yes. you don't have you may not have a reasonable expectation of privacy depending on the policy, right? That's absolutely right. And the thing to think about whether it's a BlackBerry or some other form of of PDA or smartphone, a number of these uh, uh, smartphone devices now have hard drives uh, and can't they, so there's stuff that is in their their operating system that is buried that could be forensically recovered, even if you or I, or anyone out there listening doesn't know exactly know how to bring, you know that that message or that file back. I even read a, a piece the other day that said there are some forensics that are possible uh, to to do on an iPhone as well. So, if it's provided by the employer and it's covered by a policy, uh, it's pretty clear that you're right that there would not be an, a reasonable expectation of privacy. How about the uh, a lot of employees actually work from home sometimes. Well, let, let's uh, yeah, let's kind of go down the slippery slope, so to yeah. speak. If it, it's it's perhaps a little stickier if uh, the device the the device was purchased by you but used for work. Now it, that's really tricky with it with a PDA. For example, the PDA that I quote buy unquote my employer reimburses me for. In oh. addition, they give me access to my Outlook to my email. Uh, contacts, messages, and calendar through that device. In addition, I have to agree that if uh, it gets lost or stolen, I will phone and let them know immediately, and they'll send a kill signal so they can kill everything on that device. So I think factually, uh, and I'm going to say this publicly, I would have a, a very, very weak argument if my employer were in a dispute with me or otherwise just wanted to see what was on there. I'd have a very weak argument that this really isn't my employer's. With work-at-home computers, if it's not provided by the, the employer, if it's something that you bought on your own, you use on your own, but you log in to work through it, uh, that's, that's an open question uh, there in, in the sense that a lot of people, when they, they – uh, I'm going to use the phrase dial-in, but they're really going in over the Internet into the systems at work. Sometimes they're going in over a virtual private network. And sometimes they're going into something called terminal server, which basically means you are you're sitting at home working on your own computer, but pretty much the whole um, trail of what's going on is on a computer sitting at at your company offices. So uh, there would be a trail left there. There wouldn't be so much of a trail on your home computer. On the other hand, anytime you go through a browser to go anywhere, if you're using your browser 
and you're 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 negotiating the web or you're you're in Outlook web access or some other webmail version of your company email and you download files, well, now you're actually leaving a trail, so to speak, on your home machine. Now, whether the employer as of right could tell you, I want to see what's on your home machine, uh, is an open question. I know anecdotally of at least one uh, entity here in Silicon Valley where in their uh, acceptable use policy, they tell employees, if you are using our, anything in our network over the web, even from your home computer, we can sniff, so to speak, and monitor what's going on in that connection. Wow. Now, that's pretty. Uh, that's going pretty far. I frankly don't know uh, th- of clients th- uh, of mine that have gone that far. There's one case in a different context that I've seen some commentators mention. It's U.S. v. Heckenkamp, and it was a case where a college kid in Michigan was hacking into the, the university uh, a network and also into various other company networks. And through his Internet protocol address or IP address, the, uh, the, the criminal authorities and the IT head at the university were able to figure out whose personal computer was being used in what dorm room. And they went and they said, we figured that out and, and it's you and we want your computer. Now, that's a, quite a bit different from the typical employer-employee setting. First of all, they're criminal uh, there was alleged criminal activity. Uh, second of all, I think the policy there was pretty broad. But I've seen some commentators suggest, well, gee, the logical extension of that Heckenkamp scenario with the college kid might be that an employer could legally say, hey, I'm going to search what's on your home computer. As a practical matter, in terms of what the way the, the state of the law and what goes on, it, in order to get uh, access to an individual's home computer, you, you're going to have to go to a judge, and you're going to have to convince the judge that that information isn't available elsewhere. And uh, it's typically in a trade secrets misappropriation claim where the, the former employer is saying, well, that person has gone out, taken a bunch of my secret information, started a competing company. Well, the judges are going to be much more inclined in that type of fact pattern to say, hey, we need to see what's on your home machine. Mm-hmm. In other scenarios, it might be seen as, as overreaching unless you can show some reason. Uh, in terms of day-to-day, I, I really don't know of, of companies that uh, are necessarily monitoring uh, what's going through the chute back and forth when someone's at their home Internet, but um, it doesn't mean they're not doing it. It doesn't mean that technologically they couldn't do it. If you log in with a login and a password to your employer network, potentially anything that's going through that chute uh, could be monitored. What about if you have a home computer and you're not using that password, okay, you're not going through like the intranet or whatever, but you're blogging or you are putting something up on a, on a blog or somewhere on a website that's negative about your company? Well, that's a great question. There, there have been a lot of uh, legal cases and, and press coverage in the last few years on pretty much what you described, which is uh, someone who works for a company is writing about the company. And there's so many different places you can do that now. It could be a social networking site. It could be a blog. It could be Twitter, uh, where people are tweeting away. Uh, the, again, you, you would, that information is now going to be out on the web. Uh, and so it triggers a whole host of other issues. If if you if the employee who did that has breached kind of the code of conduct or confidentiality policy that we mentioned at the top of the hour, well then there there would very likely be a a a 
viable claim against an employee for exposing confidential confidential information. As a practical matter, uh, in the initial phase of realizing that something's up there, if it's merely negative, uh, then that still could violate a code of conduct. If it's something confidential that is copyrighted that belongs to the entity, well, they can write to the website provider and say, hey, someone's violating copyright. They'll probably get a get it taken down under Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA. If it's violating the terms of the site itself, well, you can write to the site purveyor and say, hey, you're one of your users is violating the terms of the site. But as a practical matter, in terms of getting it taken down immediately, unless you fit into one of these unique categories, it's going to be hard for the employer to uh, get it taken down. It's going to be up there. But in terms of the claims they'd have, they could have a claim for lack of loyalty and if that claim moves forward in court, then at some point, yeah, they, they might want to subpoena uh, or send a records request for the home computer. But at, frankly, in those kind of web posting scenarios, the key stuff's already out on the web. Right. I mean, it's there for the world to see. That gets more to the issue of what is, from the compliance perspective, what does the employer want its policy to be? Does it want to prohibit uh, any postings about the company that are not authorized by the company. And, you know, that might not be unreasonable. Does it at least want to prohibit those kind of postings uh, when at work, on work devices, or when connected, <laughs> like you say, to an intranet right. or some other right. internal resource? They probably do. Uh, some companies that don't want to go that far, they are, uh, in fact, a lot of our clients are very high tech and very much into the whole Web 2.0 in a major way. So they want their employees to have a lot of freedom. Uh, Starbucks is not a client of ours. I'm going to use them as an example. They apparently really encourage uh, on LinkedIn and MySpace, and, and they encourage employees to form these kind of pseudo-official Starbucks sites and to communicate with each other and out to the world. They think it's part of being a cool 21st century company. And I'm not that keen on that approach because uh, it, it's pretty decentralized. I think it, if you if you really want blogs and wikis and and all that to reflect on the company, then I'd have one that that really is from the company, and I'd have someone vetting what goes on it. Uh, because otherwise, uh, you're gonna have a hard time saying, well, yeah, sure, we allowed 89 different sites, but now we don't like what's on this one as opposed to what's on that one. And that kind of gets back to that factor number two when the courts look at, well, gee. W- is the employer being fair when it tells employee A, well, she can't on her own blog post certain information, but they're letting 89 other employees have their own blogs? That That's going to not look like – it's going to look discriminatory. And it's even worse if the person is maybe complaining about illegal conduct or is being a whistleblower. So, again, there, there are ways that what that person's doing might be – not just as a practical matter hard to take down, but it could be kind of some, in, in some ways some kind of protected conduct. It kind, this kind of gets into the whole issue of off-duty versus on-duty. I mean, if the person's off-duty and uh, is writing certain information and it, it doesn't harm the company and it doesn't uh, exceed the person's authority is at the company or maybe doesn't even identify themselves as an employee, I think it's a weaker claim for the employer that the person has violated some kind of code of conduct or other obligation to perform their job appropriately. But the closer it gets to identifying the blogger 
as a an employee of of a particularized entity, well then that's uh probably a much stronger claim for the employer. Yeah, and then we got the issue of defamation. Let's say an employee is upset with a company and they say something that could destroy uh their stock. Okay? Right. And right. we see that too. That's a whole nother issue. You know, where do your first amendment rights end? <laughs> Yeah, and for a public employer, it may be even uh, the, the, the rights, frankly, of the public employer may be more circumscribed there because there are probably more whistleblower uh, rules, and and there also it's automatically government action in some way, way, shape, or form when a governmental employer uh, starts investigating what an employee is doing or otherwise tries to come down on an employee. So you kind of layer on some of those concerns. Now, there was an interesting scenario a few years ago where for about seven years, uh, someone was doing something called sock puppeting. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with that. One of, it's one no, of these what is phrases. it? It's where someone, uh, without identifying themselves, basically using a pseudonym, uh, pretending to be some kind of other character or person, like if you put a sock on your hand and made it into a little... Oh, right, 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 right. Um, okay, so a virtual they, person, yes. Right, puts, <laughs> uh, and starts writing favorable things. This happened for seven years. It was turned out it was the CEO of Whole, of Whole Foods <laughs> who was writing all these wonderful things about the CEO of Whole Foods <laughs> and the Whole Foods company and all these negative things about their chief competitor, Wild Oats, he used the name Rahodeb, which was a scrambled version of his wife's first name, Deborah. He eventually got called out, and it led to a Federal Trade Commission antitrust case against the company. It's it a deceptive to, practice, definitely, yeah. yeah. It led to a Securities Exchange Commission uh, uh, case. I think the, th- the thinking was, as you described, you're kind of, you're, 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 it's kind of the flip side of what you described. It was kind of trying to positively influence the stock. Uh, so uh, interestingly, the Wall Street Journal reported once this broke, a few weeks later, Whole Foods changed its code of conduct and said it added to the list of shall not do's. It added, you know, no anonymous postings, no sock puppeting. Uh, <laughs> because, I mean, there again, it's a publicly traded company. So the, the considerations are different company to company, but any organization, whether it's public a corporation, a private company, or a governmental agency, they've all got something that they want to uh, forbid their employees to comment on out in in the public. And the hard thing now is that uh, there are so many ways that that employees, uh, whether they're on duty or off duty, or using work resources or not, or identifying themselves or not, there's so many ways they can post information that, uh, in a way, frankly, from a management perspective, you're you're kind of you have a lot of choices, but you're kind of in a situation where you either have to allow it and realize that there are going to be downsides to that, or you really have to come down on it, or at least circumscribe it and say if you're going to do these postings, they've got to be positive, they've got to be at an authorized site, and this and that. You don't want to squash your your culture and your in your organization, but you also don't want to put the company at risk. Uh, for what people are, are posting out there. There's a, another issue that came up along those lines recently in uh, the Maryland State Legislature, where a bunch of the elected representatives in the legislature were, I think it was Facebook, it was either Facebook or, or MySpace. They had, all had their own pages and were communicating directly with their constituents. And the IT leader, apparently, at the the, the legislature, and my source on this is the Washington Post, ran a series of articles on this, the IT admin said, 
you can't do that. And they all squawked and they said, oh, this isn't just, you know, a romp or frolic. This is we're communicating with our constituents. That's what we're elected to do. And so the decision got reversed and then people were allowed to have their social networking pages and communicate directly uh, with their constituents. Uh, Mayor Newsom of San Francisco announced this week on his Twitter page that he's officially running for governor and he wanted all his Twitter followers to be the first to know. Well, even even our president did that. I mean, didn't he communicate with the people who were supporting him directly? I mean, he was using technology tremendously, and I think he still is. I think they allowed him now to use his BlackBerry. I think that was the, the Secret Service said that he could have his BlackBerry because he was so used to using it. But I think it was going to be restricted. So Yes, yeah, so gra- and that's a great case study because some of the issues that came up were uh, security some of them that came up were, were privacy, and some of them that came up were records management, because potentially anything he writes or receives is a record that under federal archiving law has to be held on to. From a security standpoint, should he really be you know, out running about with information going to and from his BlackBerry? Isn't every hacker in the world going to try to get into it? Or but could they follow they, him, or could they find him you know, with GPS? You right. Know? Right. So I think that, 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 that it raises that, – that scenario absolutely raises all the, the key uh, areas we've been discussing. And I think there was a compromise reach where they said, well, we can use it, but he, only for with certain – only the to and from can only be certain people and about certain things. I think he had to negotiate with his own advisors, basically. Like exactly. Said, yeah. We're yeah. speaking with Robert D. Brownstone, Esquire. He is a fabulous attorney. He's a real guru on technology, and he's the Law and Technology Director at Fenwick & West, a large Silicon Valley law firm, and he specializes in a wide variety of services to high-tech and life science companies. So we're going to get back to some of the issues that I think are are pretty scary with regard to to privacy, And, and that is you started to talk a few minutes ago about MySpace and LinkedIn and um people posting things up. Wasn't there just recently a woman who was fired um, for having a picture of herself? She's a cheerleader um, trainer or something at school, and she had a a nude picture of herself, and she was fired when the parents saw that, um, reported it to the principal or something. So this had nothing to do with school. She just had a picture up of herself, uh, undressed, what about that issue? Does she have the right to do that, or or can an employer say she can't do that? What do you think? Well, there was I, I did see that case, and I and I think it was in, it, pretty much in the scenario you described, and I think it was in uh, there was a similar case in Delaware. It was uh, an issue about uh, a school teacher's alleged immorality. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd apparently had an affair with a seventeen-year-old girl who wasn't who had been his student in elementary school she wasn't attending the high school where he was all these kind of cases are starting to to percolate uh, both from a student perspective and a, a teacher or other employee perspective the the bottom line is that the way the law seems to be evolving is that uh, this is a a question of does off-duty conduct impact the person's ability to to comply with workplace policies and to do their job appropriately. There was uh, yet a, a similar case of, of sorts in the Washington, D.C. area where the – and school teachers uh, seem to have really come under a lot of scrutiny in, in these arenas and students. 
uh, and student employees. And the the scenario in the D.C. area was that a Washington Post reporter uh, wrote up that uh, a school local school teacher who identified herself as working in a particular district, she was a spe- and as a special ed teacher, she and her her pal on their so- her social networking page were using the word retard to oh go back and forth God. and talk to each other. So, it sounds like what know, happened to Barack. <laughs> yeah. So right, particularly bad uh, set of facts. But um, the question then becomes, well, uh, is this inappropriate conduct? And it's it is clear in the law that if off-duty in a number of states anyway that if off-duty conduct is violative of uh, company policy uh, or in some instances governmental employer policy and or it is uh, uh, violative of some some law or uh, otherwise hinders the person and the ability to do their 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 job then it could be a ground for discipline or uh, termination now it gets trickier what if the person uh, doesn't really identify him or herself as uh, with a name or working for a particular employer. There was a case, not, not really a case, but a dispute like that in, in the Orlando area in Florida a few months back where a, uh, a very uh, veteran cop was uh, on one of the Craigslist pages where people try to hook up with other people, uh, and he had some very suggestive pictures and very uh, lurid descriptions of the kind of women he wanted to meet. Well, because it was in a small town near Orlando, apparently everyone knew him just by seeing a photo mm. uh, of him, even if the photo didn't show uh, everything uh, about him. It was pretty clear it was him, and he was a cop, and he ended up taking early retirement rather than fight his employer's allegation that this violated the, his code of conduct as an employee. So, you know, um, you know, Robert, when we have all these students on our campus and they are very much into the social networking, I'm sure, and many of them will be graduating and going on to graduate school and looking for jobs. What about background checks and what they have on that social networking? What what is the state allow with guard, regard to that? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great transition. Uh, well, two things, uh, two points. One is as a as a practical matter. The, the school teacher incident in the D.C. area uh, made very clear that uh, a number of people who post information on these type of sites are not aware that their sites are freely available on the web. Typically, uh, the, the MySpace or the, the, those type of sites, they have some pri- individualized privacy settings where you can go in and say, I only want people I know to get to these pages. So that's one issue that people should be aware of, especially students who are going to go out into the job market. Number two, even putting that aside, uh, it's best to show discretion because uh, there have been some cases that uh, have indicated that, yes, it is fine for an employer, uh, number one, to do a background check on prospective employees via the Internet. Uh, Some of the cases you and I have been describing are being uh, used as analogous. Uh, the, I know the cases we've been discussing deal with, deal with the people already at work, but uh, people that are prospective employees, uh, there, it is clear in the law that as long as you don't take an, you don't refuse to hire the person based on gender or race or some other uh, legally protected I- interest, you are allowed to gather information. So, for example, wh- uh, the example I've seen written up quite a bit is what if. Uh, someone is applying to be a truck driver, and they have had tons of uh, driving accidents, and they put all these, you know, photos and descriptions of their accidents on their page. Well, 
Uh, it, it, it would seem that it, under the, the current law, there hasn't been that much law, but it would seem that, that it's fine for the employer to go on there and uh, say, hey, this person's not a good driver. On the right. other hand, if they go on there when they're getting resumes and they, and they see that someone's of a certain ethnicity or they see someone's pregnant or has kids, well, now that's a little trickier for the employer. I mean, and this kind of circles back from the employer perspective. It gets into the issue of, well, did you consistently do this for everyone you know you looked into? Did you only use information that is pertinent to them being able to do the job? Uh, so the, the, the short answer is that if there's information that's posted there when people are putting private stuff about themselves, if that information relates to their capability to do the job, it's fair game. And there's the, the, on the expectation of privacy issue, if you post something out on the Internet, you have zero expectation of privacy. That's all the indications so far in the law. On the other hand, if there's something that uh, is uh, particular to you, like gender, race, marital status, that the, the uh, prospective employer finds out by looking there, uh, they they may not be able to use that legally uh, to not hire you. But who wants to get into that slippery slope by posting all kinds of stuff to the world? That's that's really, to me, the ultimate question, especially for the young people out there. And I think what's really scary, let's say you don't put up something about yourself, but your friends put up pictures about you. Yeah. You know, how do you yeah. get those down? I mean, can you get them, can you go and write to the ISP or the MySpace or Friendster or whatever it is and tell them, hey, take this down. I didn't put up there. I want this picture down. That's a good, um, that's a good question. As a practical matter, uh, if someone uses your likeness and uh, either for profit or uh, posts something very private, uh, there are typically uh, under the common law and under the statutory law of most states, there are various causes of action for invasion of privacy or intrusion on seclusion or commercial use of name or likeness. So you'd have a claim against the poster, but if you were, uh, if you were trying to get the ISP to take it down, uh, the, typically ISPs are immune under the Communications Decency Act. A, a provider of web space uh, in, in this, the policy was to try to instigate use of the web. Under federal law, under the CDA, Communications Decency Act, there's immunity uh, on the behalf of the ISP. Unless they had a role in picking the photos that are up there or what got said, they're not uh, liable. So, mm -hmm. frankly, they wouldn't have incentive or, or legal, legal requirement to take it down unless uh, there, there is a copyright violation or the terms of use are being violated. I mean, it's possible uh, in the terms of use of some of these sites it would say you know you're not supposed to do yeah. x y and z but you you mm -hmm. your claim would really be against the poster on the whole so it's that's a tough, a tough one. one yeah, yeah that's a is. real tough one well um, you know what we are out of time would you believe this time just flew by wow. always when i talk to you you'll have so much to share you are so wonderful we will have you back again absolutely Great. and i thank you so much for joining us robert brownson you're terrific thank you thanks for having me i really enjoyed it okay talk to you soon bye-bye bye you've been listening to kuci 88.9 fm in irvine and kuci.org on the net i'm mari frank join us every wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m right here and look at our website at kuci.org privacy piracy you can download our podcast, see upcoming guests, listen to archived interviews, and please write us emails about what you're interested in in the information age. Good night. 
The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.